Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 11th, 2020. My name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater living in Canby, Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, October 9th, 2020 are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting share ID number is 15510. And the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting share ID number is 15513. This morning's A Vision for You presents Now About Sex. Relationship ideals. What a thrill to join each other this morning to learn about relationship ideals. A powerful presentation is just before us. Just one moment, people. Just one moment. The world, in the world of addiction, for many of us, our lives become smaller and smaller and smaller. As king food takes us, we circle the funnel opening, spiraling down further and further down, but ultimately inward. The sound in our head is so loud, it takes us away. There is no room but for panic and frantic fear until we once again are numbed into a food fog state, finding that we have crossed the line into oblivion. This we repeat over and over again, daily, minute to minute, running. It is often an inside deal, starting from the outside but ending in the inside. We are hoping that perhaps no one knows or someone will rescue us, probably. But perhaps no one knows. It is the most horrific kind of alone. We are wondering if we will eventually spiral down so far in this, into this oblivion that poof will disappear forever. Can we live a full and productive life in a drunken condition like this? We're thinking about relationship. We're thinking about intimacy. Can we live fully in a drunken condition like this? Boy, we surely feel that we're alone now. Relationship ideals. There's no time, no room for anything. Intimacy, anyone? Sex ideals, anyone? Food is our master. Are you kidding me? Food is our relationship. We have gotten too small and the noise has gotten too loud. We're diminished to nothing but a shell, performing only when we're pushed to do so. There is no doing for someone else outside of ourselves. In this weakened, shrunken state where we find ourselves, there's nothing going on but self-centeredness. Yet something stirs. We know that the nature of this disease has difficulty with relationships. Then King Food came along to seal that deal. The big book teaches us that there is hope and promise that our lives will be restored to sanity and our families will be reunited. Careers will return to the economic status beyond what we had dreamed of oftentimes. We're able now to collaborate with other people and that will be possible. We'll have new friendships. We'll be able to show up. We're stepping back in to let another go before us perhaps. No longer a dream, but a transformation, a true transformation will come. Clear the wreckage of our past and now ready to step back in anew. How will we reenter this life? How will we be? 
we have this opportunity to, to outline a way in which to repose. We carefully follow the instructions for our lives. Reconciliation with the world and with others depends upon it. Considering what it used to be like, we pour over the relationship wreckage and seek God for how to conduct ourselves, thinking of the other fellow, the other fellow, and reconnecting, attaching. We are willing to do so deeply, deeply within our heart. Today, our guest speaker will dive headlong into Now About Sex. The relationship ideals that we develop and now will live by in order to reunite ourselves in love with one another. No longer alone and no longer lonely. A vision for you is happy to welcome our guest speaker to the line this morning. She comes to us today from New Jersey, an awfully familiar state of many of our fellows. There must be something powerful going on in the waters over in that state too. Oh, well, grateful to have her here today. With her strong, she's a strong standing member of a vision for you, and she brings experience, strength, and hope to us so that others may find the peace and the serenity that she has found as a result of working these steps around so many steps, <laughs> but primarily today about sex ideals. Please help me welcome to the line today our guest speaker, and we're delighted to have her here to represent on such a bold topic. Good morning, Tony Ann. Just a real quick press of star one, that should cover you. Good morning, Melanie, and good morning, friends. My name is Tony Ann, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and bulimic from New Jersey. And I'm so glad that you're here with me on the line today. Um, I'm imagining that you are here because you're seeking to be a better version of yourself, and that's pretty impressive. So I'm just going to get into it this morning. I am going to start off with a public service announcement. Um, and here it goes. Sexual disorders such as compulsive sexual behavior and sex obsession are a disease which is an outside issue and will not be dealt with during this recording. Thank you for that. Okay, so what the sex inventory is not about is sex. It is about manifestations of self that have defeated me. Manifestations of self that have defeated me. On page 52 in the big book, it says the bedevilments. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Well, let me back up a little bit and tell you a little bit about myself and how I got here. Oh boy, I was thinking back to my easy bake oven days and that goes way back. That's probably, uh, maybe some of you guys could relate. I got the Easy Bake Oven. I, I ate the entire package, the box of everything that was in there in one shot. But let me move forward a little bit, and I'm going to take you to um, February of the year 2000. February of the year 2000. A significant event happened for me that day. I was driving home from trying to go to hypnosis. Maybe some of you have tried different ways to control your food. My food was out of uh, just completely out of control at that point. I had uh, a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home, and I couldn't get out of my maternity clothes. I couldn't, no matter, I was wearing either my husband's clothes or maternity clothes because I just couldn't get myself back into shape. Uh, life was out of control. Um, I couldn't even manage laundry. I had a whole bunch of laundry baskets with holes in the side because I used to put my foot through them all the time in frustration, uh, not to mention all the doors that I was a door slammer and a kicker. Um, I could not manage my own life. 
I was staying up late at night after everybody went to bed and I was eating. Uh, a wonderful husband at the time upstairs, but it wasn't concerned for me. It was the refrigerator and the cabinet. As I uh, was mentioned in the beautiful introduction, yes, I had a very intimate relationship with food. Food was my lover. Well, I decided um, after many tries and many failures that if I went for hypnosis, because I, I, I really believed that if I could just be hypnotized not to eat at night, see, my problem was between dinner and breakfast. All day long, I could restrict and be wonderful, but between dinner and breakfast, there was no holes barred. So I went to hypnosis, and uh, while I was sitting there, there was uh, myself and the, the hypnotist in the room, and he was a larger man, and uh, he was do, started doing his thing, and then all of a sudden, one of us was sleeping, and it wasn't me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what happened, but he fell asleep on, I don't know if he hypnotized himself or I was just really boring, but it, anyway, it didn't matter. It's all part of my story. I left that place kind of defeated. I didn't feel any different. I didn't feel like I was going to go home and not eat because it made me want to go home and eat even more. But on the way home in the car, I listened to the radio and I heard a, a, a commercial and it said, three day walk for breast cancer, walk 60 miles for breast cancer. And in my sick head, I thought to myself, ooh, if I walk 60 miles, I'll lose weight. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else has ever had those great ideas, but I thought, wow, a vacation from the kids for three days and 60-mile walk to lose weight. This is going to be the answer. So, of course, I jumped right on that bandwagon, and I started training. And in order to um, qualify for the event, I had to raise $1,800 so I started walking with a group, and some of the women in my group were not able to raise the money. So I decided uh, the best way I knew how to get the message out to the public, and I wrote it, an edit, a letter to the editor. And I talked about my group and how we were trying to raise money, and I was asking for support if anybody would like to please make donations to us for this breast cancer. And uh, the day that they ran the editorial, I got a phone call from somebody, and she said to me, I'm going to also be walking in the event, but I've already raised my money for the quota, and my husband is going to be making a sizable money donation. I would like to donate that to your group. Little did I know that that was my Ebby. I invited her to come on a walk with us, a training walk, and she showed up, a beautiful 67-year-old woman. Of course, you know, um, at this point, I was 31 years old, and all of the people that I was with were younger. So as soon as we started, they all took off. And I stayed back to walk with this wonderful woman who was our benefactor. During the walk, she started to ask me questions about whether I had breast cancer and if I knew anybody with breast cancer. And of course, the answer was no. I didn't have breast cancer. I didn't have breast cancer. And she said, well, why are you doing this walk? And I said, because I figured if I walk 60 miles, I'd lose weight. And she said to me, well, I used to have a problem with weight too, but I eat three weighed and measured meals with nothing in between. And that beautiful Ebby broke her anonymity to, the, to me then. And she told me about OA. And I took that information and I said, well, that's nice, but thank you very much because I'm going to walk 60 miles and lose weight. Nice to meet you. <laughs> and I went on my way. And I did the event. In, this was in February. I did the event in October. And at the end of the event, I remember I went to the doctor and he put me on the scale. And I always had a problem with the scale. I never had a good relationship with the scale. I tried not to look at it. But somehow I looked down and I noticed the last two numbers on, on the scale was a nine and a seven. And I kept thinking to God, please make there be a decimal point between those two numbers. But the truth was that there wasn't. 
So um, my highest weight ever recorded, and remember now that I'm a bulimic, so I would binge and then get rid of the food, uh, was one, excuse me, 234 was my highest recorded weight. And I say that with quotes because, of course, I didn't get on the scale after that. And in, um, in this program, I've been as low as 133, which was actually the opposite direction, which sometimes can happen, uh, you know, with eating disorder as well. But, um, and today, I am at a healthy body weight that's determined by my physician. I stay within a five-pound range of that weight. Uh, I'm a normal-sized body. Um, let me tell you what happened after that. I went, I came into program in October of the year 2000. I was very obedient. I was uh, definitely crushed. I did everything that they said. I got a sponsor. I um, and I worked all the tools. And basically, I got abstinent. And at that time, there was eight tools. So I worked an eight-tool program. Um, and I worked step one, and then I went out and did step 12. But what I forgot was there was 10 steps in between that I didn't pay much attention to. Oh, yeah, I had my attempts at uh, writing my autobiography and uh, writing out the questions in the workbook. And um, that back at that time, we had something called the Back to Basics. And, and I have to say that that really did help me because it was big book based. But as far as the big book went, um, I read that book like it was chicken soup for the soul. You know, and somebody once said to me, well, just read the last three paragraphs of all the, the stories because that's where the recovery, I put it in quotes, that's where the recovery is. And that's what I did at that time. I really didn't have an understanding of what this program was about. Um, I did meet two guys that were from AA, and I remember in the parking lot one day I walked out with my big book, and they took it from me and they said to me, don't just read it, study it. Don't just study it, live it. And I'll never forget them holding that big book and handing it back to me. Uh, and that was my first experience of what was going to be coming down the, down the pike with my life. So uh, life went on. Um, I was able to achieve a lot of things, being abstinent. At that time, I wasn't totally abstinent or entirely abstinent like I call it today. I was still ingesting my allergic ingredients, did not realize what I was doing, did not understand about the allergy of the body. Um, so things went well for a time until they didn't. And uh, I realized that the person that I was married to wasn't going to be the person that I was going to be with forever. I ended up getting divorced. And then um, a bunch of worldly clamors got involved uh, that were very, very loud in my head. And pretty soon I found that I couldn't be abstinent. I just couldn't, couldn't uh, white-knuckle that food anymore. And I kept going to meetings for a while until eventually what happened was, you know, Putting, up the, the, putting the smile on my face and pretending that everything was okay and the lying that I was doing to myself and to everybody else was getting so exhausting that eventually I just stopped going to meetings, even though I knew that what I was doing was a really dangerous thing. And during that time period, um, I think it was from 2012 uh, to 2015 was probably the darkest time of my life. Um, I, tried, I was trying to be on a, quote, diet, just doing it on my, by myself, self-reliant. And I made a disaster of pretty much every area in life that I could make a disaster out of. Financially, my relationships, my health. Uh, one day, um, I went out to dinner with a friend of mine. And uh, of course, I was restricting as I was trying to, you know, weight was coming back very quickly. I was trying to keep it under control. It wasn't working out too well for me. We went out, we had a, I was ordering a salad and she saw uh, a bunch of people that she knew in this restaurant, and they sent over a bottle of wine to us. And, uh, of course, you know, I'm not eating a lot on an empty stomach. I started drinking a couple glasses of wine. 
Long story short, I got in my car that night. I drove. Um, I swerved trying to reach something on the ground. Somebody called 911. The cops pulled me over. When they gave me the breathalyzer, I was over the limit. And uh, I tell you that today, um, I do not have um, a mental obsession for alcohol, but I did get the DUI. So seven months, they took my license. It was extremely humiliating to my children, to my family, to everybody, to myself especially. I, I learned what shame was like I never could imagine. And um, they made me go to this program uh, for 16 weeks because I answered a question. I had to go do an intake. And when I answered the intake question, they, they asked, have you ever been to an AA meeting? And, and of course, being an OA, when I would travel, if I couldn't find an OA meeting, I would go to an AA meeting. So I answered the question, yes. Based on that, they put me into a 16-week program um, that I had to go to AA meetings, and, and I had to be in this group. And uh, I was the only person there, and I identified myself there as a compulsive overeater. I did not identify myself as an alcoholic. Um, but it was a wonderful program, and because I was not able to drive, I was able to walk to AA meetings in my area. And I have to say that being in those AA meetings really changed my life. I got my driver's license back in September 2015 on a Friday afternoon. Saturday morning, I drove myself to my very first OA meeting. At that point uh, that all this was going on, I remember every single night I would go to bed crying and wake up shaking. I had legal problems. I had financial problems. I had problems with every relationship that I had in my life. In a short period of time, I had created myself a doomsday. And I knew it wasn't even just about getting the food in order. I knew I needed to get my life in order, but I could not do it by myself. Self-reliance had failed me. So I came to the, uh, a newcomer's meeting, and I heard, I heard a woman there that was speaking. She was so passionate about what she was saying that when she shared, oftentimes she would cry. And I thought to myself, like, that's what I want. I wanted what she had. I really wanted it so badly. I asked her to sponsor me. And she took me through the steps in a way that I had never been before. I had to have an open mind and just trust that this process was going to work for me. She took, she took me through the steps as we read the big book together. And as we got to each step in the big book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I worked the steps not as I thought I should or as another addict thought they should, I should, but as they were actually written by the first 100 in this program. And I have to tell you that that experience has changed my life, and it continues to change my life even today. I'm going to get now a little bit into the text, you know, where how I got here, you know, that I belong. Let's turn to page 68. Now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling there. Wow. <laughs> uh, but above all, we tried to be sensible on the question. It is easy to get way off track. Here, we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes, perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is the lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail, which means express regret, the institution of marriage, who think the most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor, flavor for his fare. The other would have us on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. So just a little side note here. Um, I believe that Bill Wilson was channeling Sigmund Freud here because during the time when he was writing that book, that was a, a, a topic 
that was pretty uh, hot at the point at that point about sex. So we want to stay out of this controversy. Uh, I just also want to make a little side note here that uh, today I am not going to be talking about anything that perhaps has happened to me. Uh, there may be some people on the line who have had experience with abuse where they have been the person that has been abused, and uh, we are not going to be addressing that in today's recording. The, um, I will just say briefly, if there, there is some type of abuse or something that has gone on, that is addressed in, through the steps, but that would be in the resentment and the fear inventory, not in a sex harm inventory. Today's sex harm inventory is going to be talking about harms that I have done to other people. By this point, I have already put down on paper the harms that have been done to me, and we're moving forward now to see what is my part in the relationship that I've had with others. So the great thing about this book is that it gives us some specific questions. So there are nine questions that are going to be coming up in the next paragraph. I'm going to read them first in complete the way that they're written, and then I'm going to get into each question a little bit separately. Here we go. I'm on page 69, the first full paragraph that starts, we reviewed. We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. All right, so I'm going to just break down these questions here a little bit. The first one is, where had we been selfish? Um, by the way, you know, these questions remind me very much of, about some questions that I have next to my bed at night. Um, I have the Step 11 Nightly Review. There's 10 questions that I have there uh, that I keep next to my bed every night that I ask myself as I go to sleep. Um, and they sound very, very similar. I'll, I'll go over them a little bit later. But they sound very similar to these same questions that I'm asking myself in the sex harm inventory. So one thing that um, recently I've been thinking about the steps, they're taught in order but meant to be worked together. That's my belief. They're taught in order right, so, but meant to be worked together. And they're taught in order for a reason, because one thing builds upon the other as we're building our foundation. Uh, it's like learning the basics. You know, I used to coach basketball, and I would do basic skills. We would spend some of the practice just running through skills. And then, of course, you know, they would be, they always wanted to play scrimmage games, but before we can get into the actual game, we had to learn how to do each individual skill. And that's what these steps are. They're really skills that teach me how to live. So we were learned in order, but worked together. And you'll see that there's a lot of overlap between what we're going to learn here in this step and step four and all of the other steps that we work together. So uh, where had we been selfish? I'm going to turn right now to page 53 in the 12 and 12. I don't know if you have that book. It's the 12 and 12 from AA, not OA, but the AA 12 and 12, page 53. It says, our egomania digs two disastrous pitfalls. Either we insist upon dominating the people we know or we depend on them for too much. Have I been on the top of the pile or hiding on the bottom of the pile? Where had I been selfish? I'm going to tell you a story about myself. Um, I was 18 years old. I come from a home with a, um, a severely alcoholic father who was basically non-functioning and a mother uh, who, of course, supported that. Uh, at the time and was not in any programs to help her. 
and they were both loving and they, I know they cared for me very deeply and um, I've done a lot of work around that and I have total peace and happiness about that today. I look back on my childhood today as a recovered woman uh, with happiness and joy at the things that did happen and not with remorse and regret at the, at the bad things that, that did. And um, I was 17 years old. I got my driver's license. I wanted so badly to drive. My parents would never let me drive their car. And uh, they, 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 the thing they used to say to me was, uh, you're not on the insurance. You can't drive the car. You're not on the insurance. So, of course, you know, me running my life on self-will, being self-centered, I went out and bought myself a car. And uh, as soon as I brought the new car home, my father asked me if he can take my car. And I said to him, of course you cannot take my car because you're not on my insurance. And we got into a huge argument over it. Well, you know, I was telling my sister about this story just recently and preparing for this uh, podcast, and she said to me, the reason why my parents wouldn't let me drive the car was because they did not have insurance. And isn't that funny, right? Isn't that funny? But let me tell you what I did. Not having that information, here's what I did. I went to my boyfriend's house very upset, and I was furious. I don't know if anybody's ever been so angry I was fuming at my parents. How dare they treat me like that? How dare they? Well, I'll show them. And um, I said, I want to move out of the house. I want to get away from them. I can't stand being with them anymore. And my boyfriend said at the time, I was 18 years old. He said, well, let's move in together. And for a split second, I thought, that would be a great idea. And then I remembered, I literally have nothing. I said, how are we going to move in together? I don't have a bed. I don't have pots or pans or dishes. How am I going to live? I have nothing. I said, why don't we wait? I said, it would probably, you know, it would be better the way my family is. If, we, if I got married, I could have a, an engagement party. Then I could have a bridal shower. And my family will buy us a lot of things. Then I won't have nothing. And my boyfriend turned to me and he said, well, then let's get married. I was 18 years old. I was 18 years old. Sounded like a great idea. <laughs> and then that was how I uh, took my first victim, I'll say today. I took my first victim. That, that boy married me. I was 20 years old. We had a, 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 you know, I think it was an 18-month engagement. He was 22 years old. He married me because I was miserable. And he was not a person that was ready to get married. He also came from the same type of house that I did, an alcoholic father, codependent mother. And I have to tell you that that marriage did not end well. It did not end well. He, um, looking back, you know, I always thought it was all of the things that he had to blame. But where was I selfish? I was taking a person that was trying to do something loving for me who wasn't ready for it, trying to make them fit into something that I wanted, trying to push my agenda to save me, rescue me. I wanted to be on the bottom of the pile and have everybody else do the work. I was 20 years old. And the, the marriage ended, um, and then eventually I moved on. And let's just move on in uh, the next part here. The next question, number two. Where was I dishonest? So what is the lie that I tell myself? Where was I dishonest? Um, the greater the propensity for fear, the greater the need for management. So the greater the propensity for fear, the greater the need for management. So I was never a liar because I was just being a liar and I was a rotten person. Anytime that I was dishonest, it's because there was fear underneath. There was something that I'm afraid of. I was afraid that I was going to lose something I had or I wouldn't get something I want or that you would find out somehow that I'm not good enough, that I'm not good enough. So I'm going to talk about a different relationship right now. Um, 
actually, let's return to page 47 and the 12 and 12. I'll be flipping a little bit back and forth between 12 and 12 and the AA Big Book. It says here, we thought conditions, and that's in quotes, we thought conditions drove us to drink. And when we tried to correct these conditions and found we couldn't to our entire satisfaction, our drinking went out of hand and we became alcoholics. It never occurred to us that we needed to change ourselves to meet conditions wherever they are. So again, the greater the propensity for fear, the greater the need for management. And I heard something really, really struck me recently. It says, it goes like this, the same water that boils the egg softens the potato. The same water that boils the egg softens the potato. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It's what you're made of that determines who you are, what you become. So one day I'm sitting at the dinner table and my son, who's a brilliant boy, comes to sit down and he, um, he was an incredible strong athlete. He is uh, six foot five. I thought for sure we'd be going to look at colleges for a basketball. And he sits at the table and he says, mom, I need to talk to you. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, I'm going to join the military. I'm going in the Air Force. And I, when he said that, it was like somebody gave me the biggest gut punch I could ever imagine. And the air just came out of me. And I had fear. I had a lot of fear around that. And um, at this point, I had been working the steps through the big book. This was um, after I had come back in, uh, I met that sponsor and uh, got recovered. And I did work on that, that fear probably for about three months. I did 10 steps almost every day. Perhaps I missed a few days, but very few. And I would do the same 10th step every single day. And the fear was that one day I would stand at a graveside and they would hand me a triangle flag and my son would be dead. And that was my fear. And that was the lie that I told myself. I wasn't really, the, you know, the lie was that something bad was going to happen. Why? Because I believed, I was a negative thinker. I believed always that bad things were going to happen. You know, why would I believe something good could happen when I can really just stress over the negative, right? <laughs> well, I'll have to tell you that. That experience really changed me because after three months of doing the same 10 step again and again, I came out with what would I look like as an ideal military mom. I was going to be a military mom whether I liked it or not. So I had two choices, right? I could be miserable through this whole uh, event or I could be the ideal military mom and show up for my son in the way that he needed me to show up for him. So as an ideal military mom, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here to what my ideals are. I figured out that an ideal military mom would be courageous, patient, because I'm not always going to hear from him when I want to, supportive, right? I want to be supportive to him and not negative. I'd be a good listener whenever he was willing to talk. I'd be encouraging. I'd also be closed-mouthed and trustworthy, you know, have comfort, keep it confident with him. Because if he wanted to tell me things that were private, he didn't need everybody else to know. I would be autonomous and independent. And by that, I mean not being needy. I don't know if anybody's ever had like a relationship with their kids where it's a little bit needy. I wouldn't be needy towards my son and make it about me because him being in the military wasn't about me. It was about his journey and his growth. It's about him. So in that sense, I needed to be autonomous and allow him to have his own experiences without me interjecting my fear. I would be positive. 
and optimistic. I would be gracious, accepting whatever it was that he was able to give me without asking for more. And again, I would be accepting, I just said that. I would be calm, and lastly, I would be loving. I would be loving. And you know, being that is so much better. And every time I, I would go into that old fear, I would remember my ideal, what would God have me be? When I dropped him off at the recruiter that first day, the last thing I said to him, I turned to him and I said, be brave, Patrick. And he turned around to me and he said, no, mom, you be brave. That's really stuck with me. So it's not about the conditions that happen in life. It's about what would God have me be? It's what am I made of? That's what determines what happens with those conditions. So today it's four years later. My son has now been separated from the Air Force just last month. And guess what? I came out of this whole thing abstinent. I didn't harm anybody. I didn't harm myself. I didn't let the fear get the best of me. I didn't have to stand at a graveside. None of those things happened. Imagine if in the beginning I just thought positive. Instead of thinking negative, it would have saved myself a lot of angst. But in some ways I'm glad because it gave me tremendous growth. It was a period of tremendous growth for me. So today... My son um, had some new news for me just recently. Last month, he got engaged. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second. When we get back to the next um, question, number three, where was I self-seeking? Where was I self-seeking? Trying to advance my own direction. Well, definitely, if I go back to my first husband, uh, I was self-seeking there. I think that uh, pushing my agenda to get married because I wanted to get out of the house. And, you know, that opinion, that, that experience of getting married young really stuck with me. And it, and it made me bitter about marriage and about getting married young. And when my son told me last month that he was going to ask his girlfriend to marry her, him, you know, it brought back my old experiences and my old ideals. And for a moment, I felt prejudiced about it. Prejudiced is... Um, when I'm uh, being uh, stuck with my preconceived ideas without having any experience. And I thought to myself, wow, he's too young to get married. But then I started thinking about it. And of course, I did the work. I did the 10 steps. And when I thought about it, his conditions are completely different than mine. You know, he's been on his own for four years. My son has bought his first house already at 22. He's flown on a flight crew and done missions over really scary places. And in, in, I won't mention it, but he's, he's done uh, things that have been really scary and come through that. And I'm sure all of these experiences have matured him and changed him. He's not me. He's himself. And it's not fair of me to project because I had experiences in the past based on my self-centered self-reliance that were negative that my son is going to have the same experiences. So today I figure out what would I look like as an ideal mom to a a man that is married or an ideal mother-in-law. And the funny thing and the ironic thing is that when I work out my ideal, it comes out to be the exact same ideal as it would when I was a military mom, right? I'd be courageous and patient, supportive. I'd be a good listener, encouraging. I'd be trustworthy and closed-mouthed, autonomous, positive, gracious, accepting calm, and most of all, I'd be loving and proud. And that's how I show up today for my son. And I also show up like that for my daughter. I have a daughter also that's 24 years old, 
I'm very proud of her. I'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, the next question is, where was I inconsiderate? Well, I can write a whole story on that. I don't think there's enough time in the day to talk about inconsideration. <laughs> but I'm going to turn to page 49 in the AA 12 and 12. It says, pride lures us into making demands upon ourselves or upon others which cannot be met without perverting or misusing our God-given instincts. When the satisfaction of our instincts for sex, security, and society become the sole object of our lives, then pride steps in to justify our excesses. How have I been considerate? How have I pushed my own agenda on other people? Whether it's even friends, I mean, in this context, it could even be a sponsor sponsorship, sponsorship relationship. Um, I had a relationship with a gentleman after I got out of my marriage who was very different than what I had known before. He was a well-established, financially stable man that um, had a career that was very interesting and he had a sense of power. And I was very attracted to that. I was very attracted to that. And I thought that this man was going to save me. You know, I wanted, I just wanted him to come in. At this point, this is when I ended my second marriage. Um, I, I got married a second time when I was 27 years old. By the way, I got married on my second time when I was, I was pregnant. That's, that's the reason why I took my second victim. I was pregnant and he married me. And, I, you know, we, we had the baby. I had a beautiful baby girl. And then uh, when she was 13 months old, I was pregnant again and I had my second child. I have no regrets about that marriage. I look back at it with love because I got two beautiful human beings out of that and I wouldn't trade that for, for any amount of pain that everything has caused. I'm so happy to have my children there. They are, truly are the highlight of my life. And, um, but I got involved with this gentleman and it was a terrible abusive relationship. He was an addict um, and I won't get into his inventory, but I chose that. I chose to be with him. And one of the things that if you're, if you're listening on this line and you're a sponsee of me or you're a past sponsee, you know one thing I always say, water seeks its own level. Water seeks its own level. So what did I attract? I attracted what I was. I attracted what I was. I attracted somebody that was an out-of-control addict. Go figure. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, you know, he tried his best to love me the best way that he could. He wasn't healthy. But uh, I was a taker. I wanted more and more and more. And I wanted him to fix me. I wanted him to save me. And I came into that relationship with a boatload of wreckage, with a boatload of wreckage. And it didn't work out. It didn't work out. Pride lures us into making demands upon ourselves or upon others, which cannot be met without perverting or misusing our God-given instincts. And what are our God-given instincts? There is the instincts for sex, security, and society. Sex, intimacy, security is safety, and society, how do I fit in? How do I fit in? All right, the next one is, um, whom did I hurt? Whom did I hurt? So for here, I'm going to turn to page 98 in the AA Big Book. If you have your Big Book, you can turn to page 98. It says, some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking 
as long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence upon God. I'm going to talk a little bit about my second marriage. I just touched on that before. Um, I met this man when I was 24 years old. We moved in together. I had a wonderful time. At 27 years old, I found myself pregnant. Um, I was going to have the baby, and he decided that we were going to get, well, we, we decided together. We decided to get married, and um, it was wonderful. It was, a, it was a beautiful thing, and he was, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. He's the father of my, cho- of my children. Um, he has a great relationship with the kids, and I still love him to this day. We're friends only because of the help and the grace of God in this program that I've been able to make a, a direct amends to him, that we're able to be amicable and friends. Um, you know, this was a gentleman who, when I broke up with him, I had to have a restraining order because I drove him to the brink of insanity when it came to me, <laughs> you know? Um, so what happened was we got married, we had a child, we bought a house, and in 13 months later, we bought the house and I was pregnant again. And within two years, this man was the father of two with a wife and a homeowner. And he also came from a family similar to me because, as I said, water seeks its own level, right? So he came from the house where his mom had died of alcoholism and his father has alcoholism also. And so what do I expect, you know? He was the perfect uh, codependent to my addiction. It was perfect. And we fit together when I was in my disease, like, like two pieces of a puzzle. But what happened was as I became healthy, I started to notice that we weren't fitting together so well anymore. And I oftentimes described him as an anchor. I felt held back because I was growing and moving forward. And this man didn't have a program to help him with that. So he was where he was. And oftentimes I would so selfishly describe him as being tied to an anchor. And I would try to drag that anchor along. But here's how, here's how I hurt, right? Who's to blame? The anchor or the person who tries to drag the anchor? You get my point? The person who tries to drag the anchor. <laughs> an anchor is an anchor. But it was me. It was my fault. I was trying to make this man into something that he wasn't capable of being. And when he didn't fit my mold, when I was trying to take a square peg and pound it into the round hole, that hole that I had inside of me, that hole of emptiness that I wanted to fill, I filled with food. When I put the food down, something else had to fill the hole, and it was love and attention. That's what I looked for. I wanted to be safe and secure. Those are my basic instincts. I wanted intimacy, safety, and security, and I wanted to be loved and fit in. And it didn't matter who you were, if it fit or not. I tried to make it fit. And I would pound that square peg in a round hole again and again until I damaged it beyond recognition. And it still would not fit. I was the person that had to change. I was the person that had to make the difference. I, you know, it's the same story about the water. The same water that boils the egg softens the potato. It was me. It was me that had to make the change in my life. And uh, I'm so happy that I've been able to make amends to him. And uh, as part of my amends, after my direct amends, you know, I only talk lovingly about him and I think of him lovingly and I praise him to my children and I try to foster a healthy, loving relationship between my children and their stepdad, I mean, and, their, and my ex-husband. That's so important. So just moving forward a little bit, whom did I hurt? Now, next, the question is, where did I arouse jealousy? Jealousy. 
In other words, um, perhaps maybe, um, let's just use the word boastful, okay? Because I can use jealousy when it comes to my intimate relationships, and that's the obvious, right? I mean, did I do something? Did I cheat and get caught? Did I make you jealous? Did I flirt in front of other men and stuff like that? And that's obvious stuff, which many of us have done, and that would go in part of this inventory. But how did I make other people jealous? Am I boastful? Is my, do I have an inflated self-esteem where I try to make myself on the top of the pile? Remember, do I try to go on the top of the pile or on the bottom of the pile? Am I always trying to be better than everybody? Do I feel like I need to be like better than you in order to have some worth? How many times have I done that? How many times have I tried to tell people what to do? The next question is, um, where did I arouse jealousy? Where did I arouse suspicion? Uh, did I make people suspicious of me, of my motives? Have I, suspicion is an expectation of dread of something wrong. Did I cause people anxiety? Wow. How about my children? Did I cause them anxiety when I was running around after I got out of my marriage, dating people and going out and, and being crazy, staying out late? They didn't know where their mom was. Oh, I'm sure they had plenty of bitterness and uh, suspicion and, and uh, jealousy about that, you know. They wanted their mom to be home, paying attention to them. Instead, I was out seeking my own self-seeking, selfish motives, trying to find somebody once again to save me and to rescue me. What I had was a God-sized hole. I had a God-sized hole. And there's no, there's no relationship that's going to fill that hole. There's no relationship. And then uh, where was I? Bitter, of course. Where did I, not where was I bitter, but where did I arouse bitterness? So bitterness is another word for resentment, right? I'm sure that there's a whole line of people that can uh, t give testimonies about where I have aroused resentment with them. <laughs> most of them are on my harm list. If there's a, I say most because there might be one or two people that have never been come to my mind. Hopefully God will reveal that to me and I'll be able to work that out. But boy, I've spent a lot of time on that harm list causing bitterness, causing other people resentment against me because I was inconsiderate and I didn't even realize it. I was, and sometimes I would cause resentment by being overly gracious, trying to push my agenda on people and stepping on their toes, you know, not realizing that I was crossing boundaries that I didn't have because, you see, water seeks its own level, and I didn't know any better. That was how I lived. Okay, so where was I at fault? Uh, that's number eight. Where was I at fault? So after I broke up that relationship with the gentleman who I told you who uh, had a powerful position and he was, uh, it was just not a good relationship for me. That was after I married, uh, got out of my marriage. I got into another relationship with a wonderful gentleman who I always refer to like Dr. Doolittle. He's just, he's um, a very kind, gentle soul. And um, where was I at fault? You know, once again, it was a square peg trying to make me, make it fit into a round hole. And for a long time, I dated, actually dated this man for seven years. We only recently broke up in um, beginning of the spring. And for a long time, there were things about us that were very different. We were two very different people. He's a country boy, and I'm a city girl. Um, just Sometimes they say opposite, opposites attract, but for me, opposites attract, but then they don't stay together for, for me personally. I need to be with somebody that's very similar to me. And what happened was he would do things that would cause agitation to me. And he's a wonderful guy, but he would do things that, because we're different, and it would agitate me. And I would do 10 step after 10 step, and God bless my sponsor. 
who's sitting here right with me today. She would listen to 10 step after 10 step about this man. And I always came to my part would be always the same. And my part was that I'm still dating him. That was always my part. I'm still dating him. And so what I needed to do was I needed to ask myself a different question because I kept doing it again and again. Remember how I said I, I did the same 10 step for my son for three months in a row? Well, I did this 10 step. I don't even know. I think it probably was years. My sponsor would probably agree. Probably years I did this. She's laughing here. The same 10 step about this, this gentleman that I was dating. And it's always the same thing. I'm, I'm still dating him. Finally, I had to start asking myself, where was I at fault? I asked myself a different question. And the question that I asked myself is, what's holding me back? What am I afraid of? What's holding me back? And I realized that I was afraid because we would, we would kayak together. I'm a kayaker. And he would, you know, he would put his, my kayak on his truck. And it was, we enjoyed doing these things together. And I didn't want to give that part of my life up. And so when I finally figured out that I could join a kayaking club and go on my own, and I can join walking clubs and hiking clubs and different things in order to meet people, I realized that I'm going to be okay without this relationship. I can be independent and autonomous. I don't have to rely on somebody to, to live the life that I want to live. I can live that life all by myself. Can you imagine? I don't have to be on top of the pile or underneath the pile, right? I can be standing on my own by myself. I have a relationship that's most important to me in my life today, and that relationship is with God. So we're going to get to that in just a second. Okay. What should, where, what should I have done instead? Now, that ties into me for really uh, my step 11 practice, where I ask myself, what would God have me be? On my step 11 nightly review, I ask myself these 10 questions. Was I resentful? Was I selfish? Was I dishonest? Was I afraid? Do I owe an apology? Have I kept something to myself? Was I kind and loving to all? And number eight, what could I have done better? What could I have done? What corrective measures should I take? And I always ask myself at the end of my 10th step, what corrective measures should I take? Uh, what should I have done instead? So you see it all kind of ties in together. And when I ask myself what corrective measures should I take, it helps me to begin to form an ideal. What would I look like as an ideal girlfriend, as an ideal whatever that relationship is in my life? What would God have me be? I'm going to go back to the text right now on page 69. It says, in this way, we try to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? We ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. That's the first of three prayers. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in doing so. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. Here's the second prayer. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. And that sounds very familiar, right? It sounds like something else. The answers will come if your own house is in order. I believe that comes from a, the back of uh, a vision for you, page 164. We hear that every day on this line. 
God alone can judge our sex situation. So not me, not my sponsor, (laughs) just God. Although counsel with persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. And I do run things by my sponsor. I always say, God bless my sponsor who listens to me every day. She's over here laughing at me. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. Suppose we fall short of our chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half truth. It depends on us and on our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have an honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and we'll have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are the facts of our, out of our experience. So here's the third and final prayer in this part. To sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, and for strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. Let me repeat this. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. (coughs) Give me one second. So I'm just going to um, turn to the page 99 in the big book. And it says there on page 99, Remember the pros- remind the prospect, excuse me, remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon other people. It is dependent upon his relationship with God. So I listened to an AA speaker who said that a relationship can never take the place of God. A relationship will never take the place of, of the love of God. You can never fill an inside vacancy with outside stuff. I will never fill that whole that God-sized hole that I have with food or a, a, a significant other or my children or my parents or my sponsor or my sponsees. Those are all outside things. This relationship ideal is an inside job that can only be filled with my relationship with God. So um, I just want to talk for a few minutes about my relationship with God. Um, there's a difference in uh, belief in something and having a relationship in it. And I'm going to just give you an analogy. And and let's pretend uh, that um, I love George Clooney. I I think he's a very handsome man. Uh, Maybe some of you are getting a visual of him right now. But, um, you know, I like him so much that I'm going to join the George Clooney fan club. And they have meetings about George Clooney. And uh, actually two books, I don't know if you know this, but two books have been written about him. And uh, I could buy those books and study them till the cows come home, and I can go to meetings about George Clooney and be in the fan club and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is, I really don't have a relationship with George Clooney. You know, I'm only in the fan club. It's a made-up thing in my mind. And oftentimes I find with a higher power, and even within program, that a lot of people feel that way. They feel like maybe they're just in the higher power fan club. And they don't know how to go from being in that fan club to actually having a relationship with a higher power where they can actually see the evidence of love and safety. What I've been able to do is I've been able to get that relationship through working these steps. 
And mostly my relationship with God becomes closer as I become closer to the relationships with the people around me. Because I hear God speak through those around me, through this program, through working with my sponsees and through my sponsor. So I personally, um, I mean, the the best relationship I have in my life now is God that is the center of my life. And I, I use a visual. You know, I think it's very helpful to find a place where I feel closest to God and to have a visual so that I feel actually presence of God. And um, I, I feel closest to God near the water. And it could be something as simple as being in the shower. I often do most of my praying there every day. Um, but also, I, I, I relate God with nature, a higher power with nature and the universe. And especially for me, I feel connected to God through the moon. I think to myself that the moon has a lot of godlike qualities. There's only one moon. No matter where you are, everybody in the world sees the same moon. Even those people that are across the pond in Europe and Asia, they're looking at the same one as me, right? Just like God. Sometimes the moon shows itself in different ways. Sometimes it's full. Sometimes it's a slither. But the funny thing about the moon is it's always the same. It's my view of it that changes. It's the way I see it that changes. But that moon is always the same, just like God. Sometimes I don't see the moon at all, but I know it's there. I know it's still there. And I know that there's an order and it'll come back and it'll show itself, just like God does in my life. And the beautiful thing about where I live is um, when I open the blinds and lay in my bed, I could see the moon from my bed at night. So at night, I often sleep with the blinds all the way up so I can see how beautiful that moon is and let the light shine into me. Sometimes when I really feel like I need to be closer to God, I sleep with my head down by my feet so I can just get myself as close to that moonlight as I can. And I feel so safe and protected. I really do. So really fast, I know I'm closing in on time here, but I want to tell you that I I chose this topic today because I am uh, single again, and I've been doing some dating. And um, it's really difficult. I've been doing online dating, and I've been meeting a lot of people. And what a beautiful thing is that I've created an ideal uh, for my relationship ideal. I'm going to read that to you in one second. But it's very difficult um, meeting people new and allowing myself to be vulnerable. Um, You know, I have insecurities just like everybody else. But I learned one thing about those insecurities and how to get over them. And that is the answer is trust. Trust. And I'm just going to read something from um, uh, another program book in AA. Um, And here it is about trust. It's trust in many different forms and areas may be the biggest issue facing us in recovery. Trust, like surrender, has elements of being passive and of being active, and it takes an opening or surrendering to our feelings and being vulnerable. Letting go of counting on results and instead surrendering to the process is what trust is all about. And I'm going to repeat that last line. Letting go of counting on results and instead surrendering to the process is what trust is all about. Now, you may be coming in, you may be early in your journey here, and maybe you're coming in and you have a lot of weight to lose, and you don't imagine in your mind, how could this possibly happen that I could lose 100, 200, 300 pounds? But all I need to do, I promise you, all I need to do is just trust the process in this program. Just trust that by working these steps and being entirely abstinent, one day at a time, this miracle is going to happen for you. It is going to happen for you. And in, in this dating that I'm doing, I'm allowing myself to be vulnerable 
And I have to tell you, I've been on quite a few dates and I've been hurt. You know, there's people, I've been rejected, but it's okay. I would rather know right off, let a person show me who they are because I'm done fitting a square peg into a round hole. I'm finished with that. Today, I have a guide. I have an idea of what I want to be and what I'm looking for in a person. So I don't have to do that anymore. And maybe you're wondering, how can you get under the wreckage? Of, how could you get out from under the wreckage of your life? How is it that I get out of the pile? Well, the answer is simply to trust the process. Trust that these steps are going to work for you just like they've worked for me. And if you just focus on doing the next right thing that's in front of you and taking that next right step, then things are going to happen for you just like they've happened for everybody else who's had a transformation in their life and you are going to get out from underneath that wreckage. I promise you. I'm going to just give you real fast the definition of the word step. What a step means is a change of position affected by motion. The definition of step is a change of position affected by motion. You know, I always thought of the 12 steps as a staircase going up, leading to some imaginary landing at the top when I get to 12. But I don't know for sure if that's what Bill and the people that wrote this book had in mind. Perhaps instead the idea that they had when they said the word step was a change in position affected by motion. I'm always going to be changing my position. That's how we grow and how we learn. I just want to keep changing in a positive way moving forward, trying to be the best me that I could be every single day so that I can bring the best into this world and help God's children to know that there is a better way. And that is my primary purpose. That is the primary purpose in the spiritual foundation of this program. And I'm just going to tell you that I do have a relationship ideal. And if I could just find that one second, I am going to read that to you. Bear with me one second. No, right here in front of me. Um, there's 13 things on my ideal. This is what I'm looking for in a person. Um, and I'm going to read them and tell you that they're in absolutely no particular order. Number one, I would like to be with somebody who is emotionally mature. Number two, a good communicator. Number three, open-minded and accepting. Number four, believes in a higher power. Number five, who's altruistic or generous. Number six, Someone who strives for good health and fitness, physical, emotional, and sexual. Number seven, somebody who has leadership qualities. Number eight, someone who's intelligent and values education. Number nine, a person who is ambitious and has a career. Number 10, someone who shows affection and is passionate. Number 11, somebody who's good with money. Number 12, somebody who has other strong relationships in their life, and number 13, somebody who is honest and trustworthy. And the funny thing about making a relationship ideal is this. We can formulate all the ideals we want, but the only way for me to truly attract somebody that has all these things is for me to become that ideal myself because water seeks its own level. So I will attract who I am. So the best thing that I can do, as I've heard said on this line, is recover, recover, recover. And I will attract somebody that is healthy and sane. 
And I think uh, I'm going to read one last thing from the AA 12 and 12, and I'm going to close with that. It's on page 124, so beautifully written by Bill. It's the end of step 12, and he writes, We no longer strive to dominate or rule those about us in order to gain self-importance. We no longer seek fame and honor in order to be praised. When devoted by service to family, friends, business, or community, we attract widespread affection and are sometimes singled out for posts of greater responsibility and trust. We try to be humbly grateful and exert ourselves the more in a spirit of love and service. True leadership, we find, depends upon able example and not upon vain displays of power or glory. Still more wonderful is the feeling that we do not have to be specially distinguished among our fellows in order to be useful and profoundly happy. Not many of us can be leaders of prominence, nor do we wish to be. Service, gladly rendered, obligations squarely met, troubles well accepted or solved with God's help, the knowledge that at home or in the world outside we are partners in a common effort the well-understood fact that God, in God's sight, all human beings are important. The proof that love freely given surely brings a full return. The certainty that we are no longer isolated and alone in self-constructed prisons. The surety that we need no longer be square pegs and round holes, but can fit and belong in God's scheme of things. These are the permanent and legitimate satisfactions of right living for which no amount of pomp and circumstance, no heap of material possessions could possibly be substitutes. True ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tony Ann. It's a beautiful teaching on how to reconnect in relationships, looking at it from, from our point of view, where, where we had to reconnect. Thank you so much for that. We will ask Tony Ann A. for her contact information at the conclusion of this meeting, so stay with us for that and listen for that opportunity. The share ID number for today, Sunday, September, excuse me, for October 11, 2020 is 15,523. So the lines are now open for questions. If you have a question for Tony Ann, please unmute your phone by pressing star one on your phone keypad. Offer your first name, the first letter of your last name, and perhaps your state as well. Once you have asked your question, just please press star one again to remute your line the moment you've finished your question so the line is quiet for this nice recording. Who would like to ask Tony Ann a question today? Patricia C. Carla C. Kentucky. Patricia, Patricia C. and Carla C. Kentucky. Yes, Sandy B. Okay. Virginia. Sandy D. Okay. Stephanie T. Stephanie T. Mindy B. Mindy B. Like boy. Yes. Okay. Nicole C. Like cat. Nicole C. Leah okay, S. Let's go. Leah S. H. 
Okay, let's see. If, let's go with that lineup based on the time we have. Just a few minutes until the top of the hour. So let's see what we can get through these questions today. So it looks like I have Patricia C, Carla C, Sandy D, Stephanie T, Mindy B, Nicole C, and Leah S H. Your question this morning. First up, Patricia C. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that was so amazing. I've not heard a share like that before. So thank you so much. That was like just amazing. Um, I learned so much. Um, one question I had was about the ideals. Um, so I know that people do them for, well, obviously you did them for like a mother of a, of a you know, a boy in the military soldier, you know, um, you know, a, uh, obviously relationships, all of those things, friendships. Um, how do you know when you're making that ideal that it's not like um, unrealistic? You know what I mean? That it's not just like a, you're basically talking about a completely perfect person that's never attainable, um, especially when you're talking about someone else, you know? Uh, just curious about how you do that process. Thank you for that question, Patricia. That's a great question. So um, you may have heard in the big book, there's a part that says, um, progress, not perfection. And uh, let me see if I can turn to that page. We seek spiritual progress, not perfection. And that's exactly what it is. An ideal is something that I work towards. It's not something that I'm going to expect myself to be every single day because I'm a human being. And those feelings come back. So feelings come back and feelings are natural. So I may have feelings, but that doesn't mean that I have to act out on those feelings. So sometimes I may feel like I want to say something that's not appropriate, but I don't have to act out. Remember, restraint of pen and tongue. I can bite my tongue instead and think to myself, what would God have me be in this situation? And to be honest, like, it's really a muscle that you, you, you build up uh, as working towards your ideal. It's something that has to be practiced, just like building up a muscle. It's something that you have to practice by flexing. So in the beginning, you know, I might have been a little bit more needy wanting to hear from my son or you're putting a little bit more responsibility on him in order to meet my needs. But as I go through and I keep on doing the work and I keep on doing this over and over again, it becomes more in the forefront of my mind. And I begin eventually after I do it long enough, you know, after I asked myself that question about my ex-boyfriend, you know, um, what is my part? And I kept coming up with the same answer. After a while, I started realizing that I have to do something differently. You know, I, I needed to change the, the needed to change it up and ask myself a different question. What's holding me back? So when it comes to my ideals, you just something that you're going to work towards naturally. In step six and seven, remember that we have those character defects and we have to become willing to have God remove them all. And how do we do that? By probably being beaten down by them again and again. We're human beings and we make mistakes, but we keep on doing the work. And we keep on doing the work. More is revealed to us. More is revealed. And as more is revealed, we can get closer and closer to that ideal. We're never going to be perfect. And it says there again, progress, not perfection. That's not having to do with my food plan, remember. It doesn't mean that I don't be entirely abstinent. I like, for many years, I thought, oh, well, I had a slip, progress, not perfection. But that's not what the writers were trying to say when it comes to my ideal and getting closer to God. That's where the progress is. Thank you. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Patricia C., for your question. Carla C. from Kentucky. Your question, please, for Tony Ann. Press star one, please.
I'm not hearing anything. One more call out for Carla C, please, from Kentucky. Press star one, please. Hi, sorry about that. Um, thank you so Hi, much Carla. for here, Tony. Hi. Uh, my question, I feel like it's silly. Um, I am still in the food, and I just simply refuse to put it down. There's nobody else for me. That's all I have kind of thing. How, where do I begin if I won't put the food down? Well, I would say you should begin with a sponsor and a doctor's opinion. That's the very beginning. Um, I, I didn't understand what the problem, before I can come up with a solution, I had to understand what the problem is. You know, I, for a long time, you know, I struggled and I had white knuckled abstinence because I was still ingesting my allergic um, ingredients. So it was impossible for me to put the food down. Um, you know, when I'm ingesting my allergic ingredients, it, my body is mandated to eat those things. I have an allergy. It's a physiological thing. And it doesn't matter how much I physically want it or mentally want it. I can want it with all I have. But this, this has nothing to do with wanting and wishing. It has to do with a physiologic response that happens when I ingest those ingredients in my body. Now, if you find a qualified sponsor that can help you to, to determine what those ingredients are, that's going to give you a really great start. Once you're able to do that, then you have to work very quickly through these steps because they're going to help you to get from the bottom of that pile. And I know I heard you say that the food is all you have, but it also will help you to create the fellowship that you crave. You will find a host of friends in this fellowship. You will have a life beyond your wildest dreams, but you have to be the person that starts. It's an inside job. No outside person is going to be able to make you do it. It has to come from a, a wanting inside you when you've had enough. When you've been beaten down enough and you're ready, then, then take the hand of somebody. There's so many people that are in this program that are willing to extend their hand and help you through this process. But I promise you, I was you. I was you. It can happen. You just have to really just take the action. Remember what I said about the step, you know? A step is... Um, a change of position affected by action. You have to be the person that takes those actions. There's nobody that's going to do it for you. Nobody's going to come. It wouldn't it be great if somebody could come to our house and smack the food out of our hand, but that's not going to happen for us. We have to be the person that has some strength, and we have to be okay with being uncomfortable for a period of time. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, but it, we get through it. The only way to get through is to go through. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Carla C., for the question. Sandy D. from Virginia, your question, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Sandy D. in Virginia, and thank you for your share. My question is about negative thinking. Would you say more about negative thinking? It's something that I've been playing with, I think, all my life, and I'm not sure if I'm more of a compulsive, obsessive eater or more of a compulsive, obsessive, negative thinker. Thank you very much. Oh, that's a great question. Great question about negative thinking. Thank you for that. Well, I also, I, I used to say that I had the chicken little syndrome, you know, I used to think always that the sky was going to fall because I grew up in, a, in, a, in an environment where my nervous system was constantly on high alert. It was constantly on high alert and, and things were happening to me. But somebody told me something that really changed my life. You know what they said? They said worrying is optional. Worrying is optional. It's a choice. I get to choose to worry. I'm going to give you an example. I was flying down to Atlanta recently, and I sat next to this young boy in his 20s. And I, and I love takeoff and landing. It reminds me of being on a motorcycle, that big power. When the plane just gets that thrust of power, it's so exciting to me. And I love it. 
So I'm sitting here all excited for that big thrust of power with the takeoff. And the kid next to me is making the sign of, his, of the cross about 100 times on himself. I, I thought he was going to take off the way his arms were flapping. And I looked over at him and I, I kind of giggled. And I thought to myself, how ironic is this? We're sitting in the same row having the same experience. This person's having a panic attack and I'm as excited as heck. Why is that? Why is that? Because two people could look at the same situation and choose to look at it how they want. I can choose to think negatively that the plane was going to crash, or I could be excited that I'm going someplace and I'm going to get there with all this, on this beautiful plane. It's my choice how I think of things. How big is my God? I have a God that's bigger than any problem. And I think that that directly relates to the relationship that I have with God and my spiritual condition, directly relates to my negative thinking. Negative thinking is another form of self-pity. And self-pity is another form of self-centeredness. If I'm only thinking about myself and how it's going to affect me and thinking negative, that's where that all comes in. So what helps me with that is service to others. And service to others links me to a relationship with a higher power. The more that I get out of my own head, the better I am. I have a friend that calls, uh, says it's an echo chamber inside my head. You know, and whatever, whatever it is, like, you know, um, almost like a pinball. You know, it bounces around. If I choose to make it negative, it's going to bounce around those negative thoughts. But I can choose to be happy just for today. I can choose to be grateful for those things that I have in my life. And I could choose to understand that I'm safe and protected no matter what those circumstances are. And I really hold on to that because I've seen the results. I've actually seen evidence of what positive thinking. Remember I said that water seeks its own level. If I'm constantly negative and self-centered and depressed, what am I going to draw to myself? If I'm constantly optimistic and looking for that next right thing and being grateful, what am I going to draw to myself? The same thing. So really the program, I, my, my, I would say is work the program. Work on steps six and seven. Work on a turnaround. Ask yourself this question, what would God have me be? I don't think God would have us think negative. I think God would have us be happy, joyous, and free. Thank you. I pass. Thank you, Sandy D. from Virginia. Stephanie T., your question, please, this morning. Oh, hi. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Awesome. Yes. Hi, I'm Stephanie T., uh, recovering in this program. Um, what do you do about, I mean, I... I I end up like uh, moving from my family who didn't want me to be in program or to recover. And it seems like I'm running into places of living or or they're not friends, but it seems like I seem to run into people of whom are also negative and don't want me to work my program. And maybe maybe it's my disease. But uh, what do you think about that? I think you might have answered your own question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, well, yeah. well, you know, because, because I attracted what I was, okay, so the people that of my origin were very similar to me. So in order to break away, it was difficult. Of course, people wanted to drag me back down because that's what I'm used to. So in order to break away, what I needed to do was develop a fellowship of people around me that were positive. Today, I have a fellowship of people, you know, uh, that I can turn to. I have recovered people in my life that are working the same program that I am that are positive and, and they lift me up. And in this fellowship, you'll find tons of people that are like that. 
you know, by, by working these steps and recovering and working with others, getting out of myself and living a life that's focused on service, right? The spiritual foundation is uh, focusing on service. It's our primary purpose here. So by doing that, and, and it's like a euphoria to see people recover. And that really does help me to break away from that negativity. And, you know, eventually I become the beacon of light that my family of origin looks towards. And when I get better, the people around me get better. It's like a miracle, you know. It's the program of attraction. And that really does happen without me having to open my mouth. My actions, people see by my actions how I behave, the way I show up. I show up in a positive way, not focused on myself, but what can I bring to this situation? What can I bring? I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Thank you so much for your question, Stephanie T. Wendy B., your question, please. Yeah, hi, this is Wendy B. in Arizona. And um, so I'm married to a man that, that I've made a commitment to, you know, and we're growing apart since I'm in recovery. And, you know, I, I work a lot on um, trying just to accept him as is. And, you know, your statement of trying to fit a round peg into a square hole of always trying to change him, you know, so I work a lot on my own on too. But how did you get to the point where you were able to let go of your commitment that you made to your relationship? And that's my question. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for that. Um, well, to be honest with you, I did a lot of work with my sponsor. And I, I, I knew that I needed to get out of the marriage, um, but I didn't know how or when was the right time. And my sponsor at that time used to say to me, when the time is right, you'll know it. With, with conviction, you'll know. And until that time, it's okay not to take the action, to just wait. Wait until you know with your whole heart that it's time to end it. And um, I needed to get some outside help with that. Uh, I know it's an outside issue, but I did go for outside help for 18 months. I had an 18, eight year and a half, and uh, I did work it out at that point to make sure that I was doing the right thing because it wasn't just me that was going to be affected if I ended the marriage. There was uh, my family. There was two children that were very, very important that were going to be affected in a very huge way based on my decisions, and I had to make sure that my decisions were sound. So I had to run it by people in program that were sound, and also have that outside help. But, um, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a tough call. Only you could be the person that answers that call on what to do. Sometimes the more recovered I get, the easier it is for me to get, for people to get along with me. You know, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, I was trying to drag that anchor around. Who was the one at fault? Was it the anchor or the person dragging it? You know, maybe perhaps if this was, this was like 10 years ago, Maybe perhaps if I had more maturity and program, uh, my relationship wouldn't have ended the way that it did. You know what I'm saying? So I would say the best thing is to recover, recover, recover. Work on your recovery. And when, if, if the time is for you to make a move, it'll be revealed to you. Until that time is revealed, stay put and just do the work. And if you need to, get outside help. Thanks. Wendy B., thank you so much for your question this morning. That's Wendy B. from... Arizona. Nicole C., your question, please. Good morning, Nicole C. from uh, North Carolina. Uh, fourth month in the program and realizing um, that I have victims, how do you deal with the guilt of um, the guilt of that? Thank you. You're asking me about the guilt of being a victim? 
Can you clarify a little bit for me? No, from the people that you realize that the people who you have victimized. Oh, you've you've um, been a victimizer. During, oh, okay. Yeah, during this disease, um, the people that you have, uh, mm -hmm. you know, done these things against or, or okay. you know, not been kind, et cetera, how do you deal with the guilt of that so you can move on? I hope that's clear. Sorry. Absolutely, it's clear. Thank you for that. That's a beautiful question. How do I deal with the guilt of being a victimizer? Well, the answer is to continue to recover. And what's something, something is so beautiful. It says in the big book that no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experiences can help others. One day, you're going to be a beautiful example to others that come into this program and have feelings of guilt just like you do. And you're going to be able to show them how a person can recover and live a beautiful life, a happy, joyous, and free life after having made amends and cleared all the wreckage of your past. And one of the first things I needed to do was to forgive myself and realize that God loves me. I'm a child of God. I have a disease. I was a hurt person. And I did the best that I can with what I had in order to cope with the life that I was living. When I know better, I do better. And this program teaches me how to do better. It specifically gives me an outline. And once I go through it, I can feel free of the shame. Doing that fourth step and then getting up to steps six and seven where I look at my character defects and then steps eight and nine where I get myself right with others, it relieves that shame and allows, it strips away all of those character defects and allows me to just shine through God's light and become that person that God wants me to be. And I'll ask myself that question. Oh, listen, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm a human being. I still have problems and character defects, but I have a nightly review at night and I ask myself those questions those 10 questions, what have I done wrong? Where have I been selfish, dishonest? What would God have me be? What corrective measures do I need to take? It doesn't serve any good to dwell on the past. The only good thing about looking at the past is to use that information to learn so I can become better in the future. But to dwell in the past and to live in that shameful place is to dwindle and waste the time in the future and the present that I have that I can be useful in helping others. So this program helps us. So I, I heard you tell me that you've been here for four months. I don't know what step you are or where you are, but I would, I would suggest that you find a qualified sponsor who can take you through the big book as quickly as you can and help you to start clearing away the wreckage of your past. And one day, your, your biggest liability will become your greatest asset when somebody else walks into these rooms broken and you're able to reach out your hand and help that person show them God's love. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nicole C., for your question this morning. The last question today will come from Leah S. H., and then we'll transition into closing out this meeting today. Good morning, Leah. Yeah, thank you. Your question. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Tony, for your uh, beautiful share. Um, I'm, I've been divorced for about 15 years and have not dated, and I'm not sure if that is um, God's ideal for me. Um, I, I seem to, to have an aversion to even um, trying dating. And so then I say, well, then I'm supposed to be alone. But I don't know. How do I find out? That's a great question. So um, this program gives us a 10th step. I don't know where you are in your steps. But if I have a fear of any type, uh, there's a, a fear inventory. And I could take a look. The program suggests that I do a fear. You know, that, that would be something that would cause me angst or agitation. And when I feel that, I, I bring it to, to the steps. So 
So in this case, uh, being afraid to be vulnerable, it sounds like you have a fear of being vulnerable. And so I would uh, look at the fear inventory in step four and, and do a, um, a fear about it. Like, what is it that I'm afraid of? And what can I do so this fear doesn't happen? Do I realize that I'm relying on self and not God? That was a huge problem for me, self-reliance. And it took me many, many years of asking myself the exact same question before it finally went from my head to my heart. Do I realize I'm relying on self and not God? <laughs> you know, self-reliance yeah. was my problem. So once I was able to get past that and truly have that trust in God, and then it comes to what I had shared before about trust. Uh, it, let me see, I wrote it on my card here. But, but trusting in the process, being vulnerable, letting go of counting on the results and instead surrendering to the process. That's what trust is about. You know, it doesn't matter. If I, if I try dating and it works, that's great. If I try dating and it's not for me, well, that's great too. All I need to worry about is the process and making sure that I'm being the best me that I can be during that process, not causing any wreckage to myself or to others. And sometimes the wreckage I cause is to myself with my negative thinking. We heard somebody ask about that before. You know, I have to try to break free of that negative thinking. If my higher power is big enough, I have nothing to worry about. It's going to happen the way it happens. And I have that beautiful ideal that I could put that out in the universe. And I believe that by myself working towards that ideal, it's what I'll attract. You know, like attracts like. You know, give yourself a chance. Believe that you're, 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 you are worthy of having the abundance that the universe has waiting for you. All you need to do is to take those steps. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Leah Essates, for your question. And that ends the time that we've had this morning with you, Tony Ann. And thank you again so very much for being thorough and heartfelt about your process through reconnection and reconciling your relationships to others. And it's been very beautifully stated in the answers to the questions. I'm, I'm just, just delighted to be a part of Ringside watching all that transpired oh. this morning. Thank you again. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. My honor, my honor to be with you also, Melanie. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a humble Just servant. Absolutely, absolutely. I'd like to remind you again for the share ID number for today, October 11th, which is Sunday, Sunday special edition. It's 15,523. And we'll close out this meeting like we do all of our meetings on a vision for you here is Sunday special edition. It's on page 164 if you want to follow along. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answer will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your, fa your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you. 